Well then, if you would, take up your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. And our studies this morning will rest mainly in verses 15 to verse 20. Verse 15 to verse 20. God save the king. Long live the king. May the king live forever, was the chant that you heard echoing around London and beyond yesterday as the new king, King Charles III, was crowned. And it was a religious service. It was a service where he acknowledged himself that he came, or he comes now as king, not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve. And we find in the Bible a similar example, but a much, much greater example. Today we come to explore what the Bible tells us of that greater king, that greater king, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that he is sovereign over all things. The Bible tells us that he is the preeminent, supreme Lord of all. We read in the Bible how he is king of kings and lord of lords. That there is no majesty, there is no greatness higher than his. We read in verse 13, that, as we've just read, of how this great king of kings is the son of God's love. Imagine that, the love of God. That great, wonderful father has for all eternity had his love set upon his son, the great king of kings. Then we read in verse 14 about how this great king of kings is the only source of redemption. It's only through him. It's only by trusting this king that we have redemption. And so as we study these, these, these great words of Paul here in Colossians chapter 1 this morning... It's one of the greatest chapters, I, I think, in, in all of the New Testament. It talks to us uh, about this great preeminent God, this great King, Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great letter of encouragement that Paul is writing to the Colossian church here. But as he writes it, he's in prison. He's in chains. He's in chains for preaching the gospel. And it's not the first time either. You'd think he would be very downcast. You'd think that he would be very sad and miserable. But no, he's not. He's full of rejoicing. And in this letter, he, he writes it after receiving a, 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 a visit from a minister in the church of Colossae, a man named Epaphras. And after receiving this visit, he writes this letter to encourage the Colossian church. He commends them about the good that he has heard about them. Verse 2. He explains some of the things that he is having to do, how he is having to suffer for the gospel. He explains the prayer that he has for the Colossian church. He encourages them to continue in holy living. He exhorts them to press on even more for the cause of the gospel. So it's a letter of encouragement, but it's also a letter of warning. He warns them against straying away from biblical truth. He warns them against straying from the, the gospel that they have first been taught. And so he begins by expressing his thanks to God for the Colossian church. And here we are now, as we come and zoom into our text, we pick up maybe really in verse 14. Verse 14, in whom we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Here Paul is reminding his reader of the forgiveness 
the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. And he actually uses an almost identical phrase in Ephesians chapter 1. If you were to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, you would see it there. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. You see, it's almost identical. And yet some people try and say that Colossians was not written by Paul. Well, we can clearly see he's using very, very similar terminology here. We receive in him redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's what redemption means. It means to be purchased. It means to be set free at a price. And we see here that it's through his blood. That is the great cost of our redemption, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how those of us who know him are set free. But Paul here in Ephesians chapter one actually expands further. He says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. You know, this is a wealthy God when it comes to riches of grace. His store of grace is never empty. And that's a great encouragement for us. And it is a result of the great rich grace that is demonstrated to us in our redemption. That Paul now shifts away from the instruction and exhortation that we see in the first uh, 14 verses of Colossians. And we now turn to this portion of doxology and praise to God. He's giving thanks. He's praising God. He's celebrating all that he has achieved. He's celebrating all that he is. And he is celebrating all that he does and continues to do for us. These next few verses that we will look at this morning are an expression of worship to Christ. And Paul does it in a very poetic way. It could even be a hymn. In fact, that's what a lot of theologians think, that this may have been a hymn that was sung in congregational worship. But the central theme for this portion of doxology and praise is the lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. That is his kingly authority. He is supreme over all. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. He is above every other name. He is more powerful than any other. He is more superior than any other. He is more perfect. He is more holy. He is more righteous than any other. This is a holy God that we worship this morning. This is one who is deserving of our respect and our awe and our reverence. This is a holy God. That, what, what that word means is to be a cut above, to be set apart from any other. That is who we worship. He is the one, the only one who ultimately we truly bow down to. He is the only one who we truly worship as God and Lord. And we see this term here, preeminence, in verse 18. If you look at verse 18 with me, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. What does that mean? That means that Christ surpasses all others. He is first in every situation. He has priority in any situation. He is number one in every situation. The NIV translates this word preeminence slightly differently. It translates it supremacy. And I think that's a good word. It, it, it's what it, it does what it says on the tin. The supremacy of Christ. We know exactly what that means. And so my title this morning, if you want one for your notes, is the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ. You choose. We'll be using the two terms interchangeably. 
And there are three ways in which Christ's supremacy is explained to us and revealed to us in this text. First of all, we see the supremacy or preeminence of Christ over creation. That's verse 15 to verse 17. Secondly, we see his supremacy over the church. That's verse 18. And finally, we will see his supremacy over salvation. That's verse 19 to verse 20. So let's notice firstly the supremacy of Christ over creation. Look at verse 15 with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He is the image, the exact image, the exact likeness of the immortal, invisible, hid from our eyes God. That is not to say that Jesus is created in the image of God like we are. But he is in fact God himself. That's what this is saying here. It is God made manifest, the God man. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 1 and verse 3, we read, we read this in Hebrews 1 verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. You know, in other translations that puts it the radiance of God's glory. Christ, when you look at him, when you see him in prayer, when you see him in his word, you cannot help but see the radiance of God's beauty and glory. And then you later read in Hebrews 1.3, he is upholding all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things. He sustains all things. As verse 19 puts it in our text, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, or all the fullness should dwell, as we see here. This isn't God the Father at one point in history deciding to share his deity with his son. He's not promoting him. It's not God the Father abdicating and giving his rank to someone else. No, it has always been this way. It has always been the case that he, Jesus Christ, is truly God for all eternity past. He was truly God for all of the present age. He is God and Lord and for all future. Jesus Christ is Lord. He will always be truly God. And we read here uh, in verse 15 that he is the firstborn over all creation. That points to his supremacy and priority over all creation. That's what the Greek word is referring to here. It's not to say that he was somehow born at some point or the first, uh, firstborn in creation. No, he is firstborn over all creation. He's lifted up. He's different from us. He's separate from us. He is before creation. He is before time. He is before you and me. He is before any throne or king or power. He is the first. Question one of our Baptist catechism. Who is the first and the chiefest being? Answer, God is the first and the chiefest being. Not that he was created. No, not that he was created. It's the other way around. He created all things. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. By him all things were created created and he who created all things cannot himself be created verse 16 again for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible 
whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. All these things, everything you see in this world is created by him and through him, meaning that his very existence is what holds all of creation together. Look at the end of verse 17. He is before all things and in him all things consist. It's only in him that anything actually exists. It is Christ who with his Father and the Holy Spirit created all things. And now it is Christ with his Father and the Holy Spirit who is sustaining all things. And who is uh, controlling all things by the word of his power. If you were to turn back to Hebrews uh, again to chapter 1 and verse 3. Again you see in that second part of verse 3. He is upholding all things by the word of his power. Now that has very, very practical application for us. If Jesus Christ was not there, if Jesus Christ was not Lord and God, this building would not be standing right now. It would collapse in on us. He is holding everything together by the power of Christ. The earth you stand on is his and it is upheld by him. The planets in their orbits are perfectly orbiting the sun. The billions of stars so carefully placed in our galaxy. It's all created by him, through him and is sustained by King Jesus. You think about those planets that you might sometimes see in the, in the night sky uh, with, with the stars. And you think about our planet. If you might move us just a little bit further away from the sun, we'd freeze. We'd be dead. If we were to somehow swap places with Mars, we'd be dead. If we were to swap places with Venus, we'd be dead. We'd all be burned. You see, this is what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It's that perfect point uh, in in, in a solar system where a planet is just right to sustain life. And that's where we are here. That's what scientists call it, the Goldilocks zone. I wonder what God calls it, because it is him who puts it there. It's not scientists who put it there. If they found out one day that Earth was drifting away uh, from the sun, we would have no control over it. Scientists would have no control about, about it. It's Christ. It's Christ. We read in verse 16 of our text, the second part of verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Thrones dominions principalities are all created for him and by him that means he's higher than them that's why i chose that hymn this morning there is a higher throne than all this world has known because it's true his throne is greater than any throne on this earth there is no office greater than his There is no title greater than his. He is king of kings and greater than everything in creation. And it is all for him. Every world leader that you see, they may not like to admit it, some of them, but they work for him. And they are there for his glory and for his purpose. It is all for him. Everything you see on earth is for Christ Verse, end of verse 16 again. All things were created through him and for him, for his glory. Psalm 19 puts this beautifully. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Day to day it pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It all exists to bring glory and honour to his name. I love the way the American missionary Paul Washer puts it like this. He says, when he comes back, he's going to stretch out his hand and grasp everything and say, mine, 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 mine. It's all mine. It's always been mine. And it was created by me and for me and for my glory. And the only ones who I will receive into my heaven are the ones who have recognised that You see, so often in our evangelism, you hear people saying, oh, you just need to make Jesus Lord of your heart. Or you'll hear people maybe saying something even more horrific, which is, you've got all of the things in the world. You've got a nice car. You've got a nice house. You've got a nice family. You just lack one small thing. You just lack uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a terrible way of magnifying who this great king of kings is. We don't say make Jesus the Lord of your heart because, let me tell you, he is already You see, that's the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. One submits, the other refuses this and chooses to rebel against him. But one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the only reason that you exist, the only reason that you and I exist and are here at all is to glorify God. And you will do that. There's no matter saying that you won't. Many people will try and be clever today, won't they? And say, I'm not going to honour God. I'm not going to glorify God. You will do that. Either because of his rich, redemptive, wondrous mercy and love is on display through you. Or because through your rebellion and unwillingness to bow before him, you are thrown into the pit of hell. Glorifying God in the pure demonstration of of his perfect and pure justice. It's probably one of the most uncomfortable things a preacher has to say. Please do not make the mistake in thinking that this is somehow ungodlike of him to do this. Don't think that this is unloving of God to do it. He has to do it. To allow sin to go unpunished would make him an unjust God. You see, every sin that we commit, and there are many, is an eternal crime against God deserving of his great punishment but make no mistake if you're not a christian this morning god takes no pleasure in the destruction of sinners and neither should we now so often i hear christians speak a little bit too flippantly about hell and sort of say when people die well they will have gone to hell they will have gone to an eternal destruction almost delighting in it almost enjoying it it's not the attitude to have We have a longing and a desire, as God does, that all would come to him in repentance and faith. All would come to his glorious son, the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is ruling and reigning over all creation. And that is the call for you today, if you're not a Christian. Can I ask you, do you feel empty this morning? Is there maybe a gap in your heart that you just can't fill? And you've tried... You've tried to do it through your work. You've tried to to fill that gap by striving really hard in your workplace. You've tried to do it in your school or in your university and to try and make that your own little God. 
You've tried to do it through worldliness. You've tried to do it through drinking. You've tried to do it through getting into all sorts uh, of trouble with drugs and the law. Let me tell you, you will always be empty. You will always be unsatisfied if you go after those things. The Bible tells us that we are created to know God, to honour him, to glorify him. So that feeling of dissatisfaction in your heart this morning, that feeling of emptiness and loneliness that you have, and no matter what you try to do, you can't fill it, that is God preaching to you. That is God declaring to you, you need me. You need him. You need to go to him and in him you will find rest for your soul because in him his burden is light. You will find in him a king to reign and rule over your life. So you won't worry about things so much anymore because he will be ruling and reigning all over over your life. You will find in him a great redemption and forgiveness that you will never know. In him you will find a love that is far greater than any love that this world can offer. This is a great king. He loves you and wants you to come to him today. Can I ask you, will you do that? Will you do that today? Would you, would you acknowledge that he is king and that you want him? You're not running away from him anymore, but you want him to reign over your life. Because he is king. He is Lord. And this changes everything if you're downhearted this morning lift up your head because christ is king and he is king forevermore there's not a single part of creation that his preeminence and supremacy does not touch if you are downhearted if you are downcast if you're struggling in certain ways lift up your head because christ is king And so let us look at the second way in which Christ shows his supremacy, his preeminence. We see how his supremacy is shown over the church. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You see, there's sometimes some confusion here when when he says that he is the head of the church. This is really two-pronged. He is the head of the church local, but he is also the head of the church universal. This is what sometimes we call the, the Catholic church. And when we say that, we don't mean the Roman Catholic church. We mean the universal church. That's what the word Catholic actually means. And Christ is head of both. Christ is head of the universal worldwide church. It's not the Pope. It's not ministers who are appointed. It's not uh, heads of big mega churches in America. He is head of the church. It's not pastors. It's not preachers. It's not ministers. It's not even elders. They are simply ministers of Christ, under shepherds, stewards of the gospel. It is Christ. It is not the government. You know, we've seen this so many times in in recent years of the government trying to have more and more influence in churches and telling them what they can do, telling them what they can't do. And you think it's bad maybe in this country. It's far worse abroad. 
In China, the Chinese government have tried to do something called sinicizing uh, churches, where essentially they tell them that you can have a church, you can have uh, freedom of, of religion, provided that you obey all of the rules that we tell you. And of course, many churches have to say, no, we can't do this, and they are forced underground, or they're forced uh, online in some cases. It's not the world who is head of the church. So often we try and dress our churches up in a way to draw people in. We try to make them more fashionable. We try to make them more trendy. We try and make them more cool. You see, the Lord's Day worship is not actually for them, ultimately. It's for God. It's for us. He's our audience, if you like. It's not, it, it, it's, it's not the world. It's not trying to get them in. We're glad when they do, but that's not what it's all about. And you see some people who've turned their churches into basically rock concerts to try and get people in, to try and stay relevant, to try and stay contemporary. But you take away the flashing lights, you take away the smoke systems, you take away the music, you take away all of the technology that they've got, and what have you got left? See, in a true church, you could take everything away. You could strip these walls down, you could take the chairs out, you could rip the pulpit down, and you would still have a church. Because all you need is people, a gathered people, and a Bible. And so when persecution comes, is your faith going to be found wanting? Is it the case that church for you is just a social club? Is it just a place where you go maybe for a nice sing-song because you like singing some of the hymns? You go to church for the things that you can get out of it rather than pursuing the glory of Christ in it. See, we read in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning. He is the beginning of the church. He is the foundation on which we build. Dear name, the rock on which I build my shield and hiding place, my never failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. Everything we do as a church is centered around him. The church begins with Christ. He is the founder of our faith. He is the author of our faith. He is the founder of our church. And any faithful Bible preaching church is planted by him. Yes, of course, there are church planters who serve greatly, but it is primarily planted by him because he is the foundation. He is the firstborn. He is the beginning of the church. He is the rock on which the entire church universally and locally is built. He is the firstborn from the dead. You see, he has priority and preeminence over the church. And almost as a part of this, these things are so linked and so locked together. He also has priority over death. You see, Jesus was the first to be fully raised from the dead. And now you may say, well, hang on a minute. What about Jairus's daughter? What about Lazarus? What about the other people uh, throughout scripture who are raised from the dead? Well, they all had to go through the dying process again. They all eventually died. But Christ never did. He died. He was raised. He ascended into glory and will never die again. Because unlike every other priest, he sat down next to the right hand of the father never to die again and that is the same for us though we die we will be raised to life never to die again i am the first and the last i am the living one 
I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. He conquered death once and for all, making way for the resurrection that we will have on the very last day. Our bodies will be raised totally perfect and totally new. And he did all of this and will do all of this. So that, as we read in verse 18, in everything he might be preeminent. He might have the preeminence. He is preeminent over all. He is Lord over all creation. There isn't a single millimetre in our all ever expanding universe that doesn't, he does not have a claim over. That he does not have complete control over. Christ is Lord and he keeps building you in your life. Whether you are young or whether you are old, he keeps building and, and sustaining you. He keeps building his church and growing his church. And what a reassurance this is to us. When we see churches throughout this country shrinking and getting smaller. When we feel like our own efforts to evangelize and to share the gospel with people fall on deaf ears. We can look up and say Christ is still ruling and reigning. He is still building his church. He is still building together that wonderful group of people from every tribe, tongue and nation. He is the Lord over every aspect of everything else that you see. He is supreme over your life and my life. He is supreme over your job. He is supreme over your education. He is supreme over your health. He is supreme over your relationships. He is supreme over your very existence. He is Lord over all these things, so there is no use in making idols of them or trying to elevate these things above Christ. There's no point making your health your idol and your God. There is no use in making your physical appearance your idol and your God. There is no use in making your relationships your idol and your God. There is no use in putting priority on good things but making them more and greater than Christ in our estimation. You see, that's one of the ways the devil often works in our lives. He gets good things, good blessings that God has given us, our work maybe, our football team, our relationships or our marriage, and he makes us elevate them over Christ. And my friends, if you do that, you will be very, very disappointed. You know, Christ is Lord overall and so i want us to notice lastly before we close our third and final heading how christ is lord he is supreme he is preeminent over salvation read with me verse 19 to verse 20 for it pleased the father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him whether things on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of his cross. While Jesus Christ was on earth, the fullness of God dwelt in him. He was always God. He was mighty God in mortal flesh. Remember that hymn, that carol that we sing at Christmas, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. You see, this is God on earth. When we see Emmanuel, God with us. But it's actually more than that. Long before his great incarnation, the fullness of God 
and the fullness of God's love dwelt in him. You see that in verse 19, in him all the fullness should dwell. That means all of the fullness of God, everything that it means to be God was inside him. And so the fullness of God's love, the fullness of God's delight and joy was set upon him. How do we truly know then that God is a God of love? We know because he has an eternal love for his son. You see, if God was alone for all eternity, how could he possibly be a God of love? He was on his own. He had no one to love. But we read in the Bible that for all eternity past, before the foundation of this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit was there with God the Father, meaning that he could love. He had an object of his love, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this son, this king, who he's loved for all eternity, takes on mortal flesh. This great king. You see how Charles was robed yesterday in these great garments. Christ's robe is far greater than that. And yet he comes to earth in the most humiliating and degrading way you can possibly imagine. Being born in a stable. Now we romanticise that at Christmas in our nativity scenes. That would have smelt. There would have been all sorts of disgusting things going on there. And he found the most humiliating and degrading way you could possibly imagine someone to be born into. But he came with a brilliant and divine purpose. You see, you would see no other king going through where he went. But he had this great purpose, as we see in verse 20, to reconcile all things to himself. Reconciliation. Well, we could spend a whole sermon on just that word. But very quickly, it means the restoration of friendly relations. It means the restoration between sinful man and holy God. As we said right at the beginning, that word holy means that he's set apart from us. He's very different from us. It's one of the most important things you need to know about God. It's the only word that is repeated three times when talking about God. Twice in Isaiah 6 and also in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. He is great. He is high and lifted up. He is perfect. He's never done anything wrong. And so therefore, you and I, in our natural state, are at enmity with this living God. We are, in our very nature, haters of God. We read that in in, in Romans 3, how God hates our sin and how we don't seek after him. In fact, we run away from him. I heard it once said that the only way man seeks after God is how a criminal seeks after a policeman. To run away from him, to hide as quickly as he can. But reconciliation means that God, with the the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, has purchased our peace. Verse 20, he has reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see that cross, and you think how humiliating and painful that must have been for Christ. That was his throne. That is where he was the victor because he showed how he is king over the worst thing that you can possibly imagine. 
It showed that that great power of sin, the great power of the devil, could not be uh, better than him. He demonstrated on that cross as he cried out, it is finished and your sin is dealt with and it is washed away. He was crying, our great victory cry, it is finished. And so now we have peace with him, that we may approach him as adopted sons of God. And we cry out, Abba, Father. We can cry out to him, not as someone to be scared of, not as someone to fear, but as a great, great, loving father. I think there's no greater picture of this uh, than yesterday as Prince William, Prince of Wales, kneels before his king to pledge his allegiance to him. But he also kneels before his dad, the one who he has free access to at any time of day, the one he can go to at any point. And that is the access that we have to our king. Yes, he's king. He's Lord. He deserves our respect. He deserves our adoration. But at the very same time, we go to him as our father, as our gracious, compassionate God. The one, in fact, who, because of the Lord Jesus Christ's time on earth, understands every affliction, understands every pain that you go through, understands every heartache. And who, because of that great love he had for us, satisfies God's justice satisfies God's wrath and anger at sin. We see that in in my favourite part of the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, how uh, God makes us a new creation and that then all things come from God. All these things making you new, transforming you, changing you, reconciling you, comes from God. And now we've mentioned creation several times today. We've looked at creation several times and if you were to look at the first three chapters of genesis you would read an account of that creation how god formed everything how god created everything we see how 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 god has created everything and what did he say about his creation it was all very good and then we read of the fall We read how God says there is just one command I give you and you are not to eat of the fruit of that tree. And man disobeyed him. Man rebelled. And instead of killing him and killing Eve, as God said he would, he instead makes a promise. He makes a promise that one day that serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, that serpent who deceived us, would receive a greater curse than the curse that would be laid on us. And that one day, that serpent would be destroyed. That serpent would be defeated. And he gives us a great promise and hope of eternal life. But we read in Genesis 2-7, how the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature he breathed life and the whole universe into existence and it was all very good and then we obviously know how we have continued to sin against him and yet that promise was fulfilled that god made that he would send his perfect son the lord jesus christ to earth 
And he lives a perfect, sinless life. A life that you or I could never live. And then he goes to the cross. And how we read of how God breathed life into existence. He didn't breathe salvation into existence. He died for it. He didn't breathe salvation into existence. He had to die for it. And that is a love that's so amazing that one preacher puts it like this, that the salvation of one single soul is a greater miracle than the creation of the entire universe. You think about that if you're a Christian this morning, that your salvation, your salvation, no one else's, your salvation is a greater miracle than the creation of the entire universe. It's a love that is so amazing. It is a love that is so divine. It demands your life. It demands your all. So if you're a Christian this morning, you have become that new creature in Christ. Nothing else matters anymore. Fame, money, self-interest, health, your own safety and your own self-preservation. None of it matters anymore because it, it is all about Christ. He is supreme over all things. He is better than anything else you will ever experience. He is stronger than the greatest force of evil you will ever know. So follow him. Rely totally on him. Let him be your refuge. Let him be your shield. Let him be your hiding place. Put total commitment on him. Because he is worth so much more than you and I can ever know. If you take everything, everything in your life, you get every good thing, all of your work, all of your, all of your grades, uh, all of your family, all of your friends, and you put them on one side of the scales... You get the entirety of creation and you put that into the scales as well on one side. And then on the other side of the scales, you put the Lord Jesus Christ. He outweighs them all. He is that glorious. He is that supreme. And so he calls us to submit to that supremacy. So can I ask you again, is that you? Do you know him? Do you know him as your Lord? Do you know him as king? Are you willing to surrender all, to count the cost and follow him? You see, many of us will know of the missionary Eric Liddell, a great Olympic athlete made famous by that, uh, that great film, Chariots of Fire. One of the best athletes of his time. And he gave it all up to be a missionary in China. People were very confused about this. People in the world were very confused about this. Why? Why is this talented man, this great man, throwing away his career, throwing away everything else he's got? And so as he boarded the train at Edinburgh Waverley Station to leave Scotland for the last time, many people rushed after him and said, what are you doing? Why are you wasting your life? And as he gets into the carriage, he shouted out, Christ for the world, for the world needs Christ. And then to make sure there was no more attention on him, he began the crowds in singing, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Is that your theme this morning? Because if you are a Christian, This morning you have no greater responsibility than to make this all-powerful Jesus Christ known. But if you're not a Christian, you must come to him today. 
If you are not a Christian, come to him without any delay. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the time to come to him, this great Lord of all creation. Because in him you'll find a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. A kingdom uh, and a, and, uh, a glory that will last much longer than the reign of Queen Elizabeth II or King Charles III. A premiership that will reign much longer than that of Biden or Trudeau or Sunak or Macron. A reign that will last much longer than any leader in this world today. Because for us, there is a greater throne, a Jesus Christ who is ruling and reigning. Come to him today. Amen. Let's pray. Our glorious God, our great high king, we come to you and we confess that we have sinned against you and done evil in your sight. Lord, we are truly sorry and repent. We have a longing and desire to turn from our sin and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would he be king in everything that we do? Would he shine his light into our lives no matter the cost? Lord, we pray that this salvation that you have shown to us would truly be ours. We pray it now.